everyone. Welcome to the Critical Language Scholarship's Diversity and Inclusion podcast series, where we deep dive into issues of identity and global experiences. Come along with us as we cross borders of geography, ideas, and cultures with CLS alums from all over. My name is Ashley Rivenbark, and I participated in the Critical Language Scholarship in Hangzhou, China in 2014. I currently work for a global consulting firm called Protivity as a learning and development specialist. And I'm Miriam Tinberg. I did CLS in Amman, Jordan in 2012, and then did a Fulbright English teaching assistantship in Rabat, Morocco from 2014 to 2015, and I currently live in Los Angeles. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Michael Ford. Michael Ford is a threat finance analyst at Sayari, a financial research firm based in Washington, D.C., where he investigates individuals and companies engaged in transnational crime. During his undergraduate and graduate studies, Ford completed a David L. Bourne Fellowship in Beijing, a Critical Language Scholarship in Xi'an, and a Fulbright English Teaching Assistantship in Kaohsiung, Taiwan. He has interned at the Department of Defense, Hudson Institute, the Center for Advanced Defense Studies, and the Congressional Executive Commission on China. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Like, as you know, this is our inaugural podcast episode for our Diversity and Inclusion podcast series. Thank you so much for the invite. I'm really excited to be here. We were both curious, what made you want to study Chinese? I actually didn't want to study Chinese in the very beginning. It's something I actually fell into. I remember I was on my college campus, and I really wanted to go to Japan. My heart was where Japan was at. And I went to the uh, international office and said, okay, so how do I get to Japan? And uh, she met, she gave me a price tag and said, this is how you get there, paying this large bill. And I said, China, Japan. <laughs> I really didn't see the difference at the time, really not really knowing anything about the region. Uh, and so to me, there was no difference between like pandas, ch uh, Chinese Tai Chi, and just like Japanese culture. So I was like, sure, why not? It'll just be the same thing as Japan. Well, I was absolutely wrong. And when I got to, got to China, I fell in love immediately, got to Beijing, saw, saw Tiananmen Square, saw the Temple of Heaven, realized that it's got 5,000 years of history and culture and the language is just incredibly hard, but really traditional in, in some aspects with the traditional characters. And uh, I, I just recall, just to tell one more story, I was walking down the street and I just remember one of the gentlemen that, he was one of my, one of the Chinese, uh, like he, he sold like the breakfast in the morning. And he, every time I would walk by, he'd go, hey, means you're coping, coping. <laughs> Oh, like, no. oh, 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 Kobe Bryant, huh? Oh, interesting. Uh, oh, and God. as I began to experience oh, things like that with my Chinese counterparts, uh, I became even more interested in Chinese culture because I began to see it as an opportunity to not only be a cultural ambassador between the United States and China, but even more so to be an ambassador of a subculture within the United States, and that is Black culture. And so being able to learn a language and then share uh, my experiences that not every American looks alike, has the same experience, mm -hmm. or socioeconomic status or identity, X, Y, Z, is what sort of drove my passion for Chinese culture in the end. I feel like many people have the Kobe story. <clears throat> yeah, it's very good. So you sort of um, touched upon this just now, but CLS is all about, I, I remember this from my application, why do you want to study the language in the, the target language in the host country? They're all about that. And they definitely put a, um, a stress on that. So why do you think that learning a language in, the, in a target country is important? And what do you get from learning it in, this in a country that you wouldn't from, you know, in the classroom in the States? I think that whether you're learning, uh, you know, a foreign language, or in my case, 
uh, Mandarin for a job or internship or just for pleasure because you want to enjoy the movies and TV shows and the music. Ultimately, I think foreign language and just language generally boils down to human interaction. And Mm -hmm. one of the best ways to get that human interaction is by being in the host country and being there uh, because language is fluid, it's changing. The language that, you know, Chinese that was spoken 50 years ago is very different than what's spoken now with the mm-hmm. new terminologies. And so I just think that being in the country and interacting with people, you get to really feel um, and learn just how fluid and alive uh, language can be. Yeah, that's so true. And so kind of playing off of that, you know, you get that people interaction when you're over in China. So when you're back here in the States, how do you continue to practice and maintain your language skills? My job requires that while I'm investigating individuals and companies that engage in transnational crime, that I'm required to read custom records, tax documents, legal documents, Xinhua news articles. And so Mm -hmm. because I'm required to do all this reading in very different contexts and different writing styles, different levels of formality, I'm practicing my language skills every day in terms of just reading because I'm dealing with issues like North Korea sanctions evasion, proliferation or drug trafficking. And so being able trying to locate these individuals, I need to be able to read these documents. So I'm able to do that in my daily work, but outside of work, and that's really a challenge for, mm-hmm. for me uh, because I'm reading it all day. And when I get home, I just sort of want to relax. So mm-hmm. Yeah, um, of course. On, on that note, uh, I've actually picked up some children's books in Chinese to practice. I, I, I just sort of want to read something that doesn't, I don't have to really try hard and I can just really mm-hmm. enjoy myself. So I'm reading Matilda in Chinese, actually, which is, which is, which is fun. Um, and, you know, just get to learn some interesting phrases that I wouldn't otherwise be exposed to in my formal reading. And, and I'm also taking advantage of CLS's Alumni Society's discount with Chairman Bao. So, you know, when I'm on the bus or I'm on the train, mm-hmm. I'm reading Chairman Bao both at all levels, not just, you know, HSK level six plus, but also one, two, and three. Um, because I just think there's value in just constantly consuming the foreign language and at all levels, whether it's, you know, learning how to say satellite or giraffe. I think that being able to be exposed to all those words and right. uh, grammar structures at all levels is important. I also listen to as hip hop has become more popular in China, a lot of Chinese uh, trap music. Which I absolutely what? love. Yeah, yeah. So wow, uh, oh, I gotta write that down. Globalization <laughs> is crazy, man. Yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, so just uh, you know, trying to consume it as much as possible. And I think if I could like recommend something, uh, one thing I did was I loved uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender as a kid, and and SpongeBob. And so you know, to practice the the listening as well, I watched those in Chinese because. At the very least, if I'm not understanding, I can still follow the storyline. Um, and then just still just hear Chinese in the background. So so are you doing any speaking then? Because it's such right. a challenge to, to hit all four of those skills. And I'm, I mean, I'm struggling as well. And Ashley, you say like you're virtually mm-hmm. you're not really doing it at all anymore, except occasionally right. for fun or whatever. Yeah, so no, that, it's so hard when you're like not in the host country, right, to get that speaking. So for that's, sure. I'm, I'm in the same boat where... I, I honestly don't have anyone where I can practice my speaking, which is what the skills you get at CLS. It's mm-hmm. like so hard to practice those here in the States. So especially if it's not like a Chinese uh, speaking population near you. Do you guys ever talk to yourself? I drive sometimes uh, and I'm like describing uh, things yes. in Arabic and I'm like, I just got a muscle memory, time. muscle memory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> To yourself. <laughs> yep. So, and Michael, on a completely unrelated note, how in the world has there not been like a TV show made about you yet? I mean, oh. with your job, you just, 
I just read about people that do the kinds of jobs that you do. So you have to meet someone. That's incredible. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Let me tell you, I, I promise you that I'm not as interesting as I may sound. So uh, that has a lot to do with me not having a TV show. Uh, but, but well, CLSers you. and language people. To the average world, we're prob- like our CLS experience is probably so boring and weird. But to us, it's very. you're very cool what you're doing. And we're like, you know, nerding out over here. It's oh, great. Gosh. Yeah. That's awesome. Very cool. Well, okay, Michael. So kind of switching gears to kind of the meat of what this podcast is about, which is diversity and inclusion. Um, We were curious to know what diversity and inclusion means to you and why you believe it's important in the context of learning different languages. Thank you for, one, for uh, having this podcast on this topic. It's a very important issue. It's something that's personal passion of mine. I'm just so glad that you two are equally as passionate about it and here having starting the conversation I think for me, diversity is an umbrella term that uh, includes sort of the widest swaths of human identity. It's the gambit of experience as well as self-identification, and it's all intersectional and always changing, and it's not something that's static. And so this can include anything from race, gender expression, gender identity, to whether you identify as femme, masculine, socioeconomic status, ability, age, religious orientation, sexual orientation, you name it. But I think beyond just being a catch-all term, Mm -hmm. I think that diversity is about seeing another person for everything that they are in that moment. And and until you're able to do that, I I just really am questioning sort of your ability to see someone or just to embrace diversity. Because I think a lot about embracing diversity is seeing someone for being the son, the father, trans, you know, man that is able-bodied. For, for what have you. So I, on your question of diversity, I think that's how I define it for myself. That's such wow. a good answer. And I feel like people always want to cite some academic definition of what, mm. I mean, even when I was just Googling, you know, diversity, all these different universities' definitions was coming up. And it's really as simple as that, right? Like seeing people for who they are and existing right. in like a room with them and all of their, totally. you know, all of their things totally. that they bring with them. It's really totally. not that hard. Right, exactly. Right, I mean, right. right. <laughs> Acknowledging <laughs> people as people. <laughs> Yes, totally. Seeing the humanity for everything that it is. Um, So we're talking about both diversity and inclusion, but also language learning and how the two are kind of married. Um, So why do you think it's important? Why do you think diversity and inclusion is important in the context of language learning, specifically when you're abroad? Mm. I think that diversity and inclusion are important specifically when you're abroad because you just can't divorce the two. I think just being a person of color myself, um, you're always on display, just you know, just for one, being a foreigner in the country that you're visiting, but also just being a student of color. Um, you know, you're seen in ways that uh, maybe your counterparts aren't, and it and it all really depends on your identity, right? So some identities are visible, whereas other identities are not. I mean, so right. for me, my blackness is a very visible identity, whereas you know, some of my friends who are LGBT, it's something that is invisible, but still, you know it could be just as violent as me being a black person that you can see my identity. Some countries um, being tied to the same sex can be very hostile Mm -hmm. um, and not well-received. Or if you identify as gender that's not sort of, that you're not read as, it can also be really hostile and violent. So I think that it's especially important because you're not only just navigating what it means to be a foreigner, but you're navigating sort of these, what other folks, even in our home country, don't try to acknowledge some of those identities in, in, with, with countries that even haven't even had those conversations yet. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in China, 
uh, there's just really not a conversation about what it, black Americans, if you have black skin, you're African, um, right. or you're in sports. If you're a woman, there's a, some gender norms that are influenced in terms of their thinking. You're constantly going to be battling, I think, uh, these preconceptions about you, not just as a foreigner, but on these other identities as well. So it's, it's inevitable that they are glued to your experience abroad. Yeah, definitely. And that's something that I think about a lot because, you know, we both have studied abroad in China, but my experience being a white female is, I'm sure, and I've talked to friends as right. well, is different than your experience as a black yeah. male studying mm-hmm. in China. So we were wondering, too, if you could, t- I know you had already mentioned, and Miriam, I loved how you called it a Kobe moment. Can you maybe talk about, yeah. Insert you- famous black American. You know, it's yeah. like not just Kobe. Exactly. I had a friend that we were in Japan, and he got called Obama a lot, you know? Yeah, so, oh, for- you know, popular so one, yeah. Can you, can you talk about a time, you know, you had mentioned that, but can you maybe t- a little bit, talk a little bit more about when your racial identity was at the forefront of how others perceived you, and then, too, about how you turn it around to make it maybe a teachable moment? So, um, yeah, um, I think the first step towards making it a teachable moment or just, you know, how you're responding uh, to these microaggressions for, mm-hmm. in many ways, what, what sort of these these prejudice or these forms of bias sort of uh, manifest as is uh, microaggressions, but it can also be a little bit more, mal- uh, more, more sinister than that in other ways. But at least in China, you know, when they would call me, oh my gosh, Obama, or, you know, Kobe Bryant, Kobe, Kobe, um, I sort of right. have to take a step back and uh, think about intent versus impact. So what is the intentions of this individual and then separating that from the impact. So although the impact right now is, you know, making me feel like he's kowtowing to racial stereotypes, really in some ways dehumanizing me, right? Because he's not seeing me for Michael Ford or Lee Fule. You know, mm-hmm. he's seeing me as just this black face that looks no different than Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, you insert black famous person. Um, <clears throat> uh, and separating that impact from... Um, the person's intention, which is, you know, to really sort of, uh, he's never seen a f- probably, but I think him putting himself out there to really, um, in, a, mm-hmm. in the only language that he knows how is really what has taught me to be a little bit more patient and understanding and demonstrate a little bit, a lot more compassion than I otherwise would. Uh, because I just don't think the cultural competency is always there when you're in a foreign country, when it, when it, ta- when we, when it comes to identity and how they intersect with so to give an example of that, I, re- I remember it was one of my first times in China and a few of my Chinese counterparts, college students, they were like, hey, um, do you want to go and play basketball? And I was like, oh, um, you know, I really don't because I have a dancing background from high school and college mm-hmm. and I just, I, I haven't played basketball since I was 10. You really, I really don't. They're like, no, 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 no. You're so strong. Oh no, you're like, muscles are so big. Come on. I'm like, oh, well, you Okay, all right, gosh, guys, you're gonna flatter me. <laughs> so, so I, so I go to the basketball court, and I'm just like, gosh, guys, they really made a mistake. And we get to the court, and they're fighting over me. He's gonna be on my team. No, he's gonna be on my team. And they're like, rock paper scissoring, like going head to head. Finally, I get on someone's team, and the game begins. <clears throat> and so, as we, you know, immediately after the game starts, the one of my uh, Chinese counterparts, teammates, he throws the ball to me, passes the ball to me, and so I go. I go ahead and I, you know, raise the ball, take the shot, and it goes in the air, past the board, and into another court. And the fe- looks of their faces oh, God. was just so shocked. Like, oh, I don't understand. It was just like, can't compute, can't compute. How is this, oh. this black man, who's supposed to be Kobe Bryant, 
not Kobe Bryant on the court right now. Um, and so I think that ended up, uh, uh, when we went to dinner, uh, we were able to sort of have a conversation over Hot Pot um, mm. about uh, sort of some of these stereotypes. And so it was really funny, even though, you know, they're, they were definitely acting on bias and their preconceptions of what it, what it means to be a black man, you know, being able to separate that and then engage in the conversation and dispel some of those notions in a very fun, fun way. It's, some, it's one of the, the ways I've, I've begun to approach it. Wow, thank God for your bad basketball skills. Uh, yeah. <laughs> good thing you weren't good. Right. It's like, otherwise you would have just proven the stereotype. Wow. Exactly, exactly, right? Um, so this exactly. wasn't a question on the list, but I'm curious now from what you're saying. It seems like you are someone who's hyper aware of diversity. You think about it a lot. You mm. think about it in terms of mm. microaggressions and impact versus intent and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I think now it's becoming a, a thing that more of us are thinking about and have terminology like that. Mm. But there are tons of people who go abroad and aren't fully ready for that, um, which hopefully we're moving towards being better trained and right. oriented before we go. But in general, it seems like you Sorry. were able to keep a pretty positive, optimistic outlook. Mm. Um, and I'm mm -hmm. curious... If, if there were, and we'll get into this a little bit, so you can just touch upon it briefly, how you were able to stay above water, were there moments mm -hmm. where you kind of felt like you were drowning? How does one just stay, like, focused on the mission Definitely. and, you know, objective Certainly, like that? yeah. So I think that's a great question. I think it's a very real question because um, I think I, uh, at least up until this point of the conversation, it made it sound like roses and rainbows, but it's, uh, it's a lot darker than that, um, especially on the day-to-day, -day, <clears throat> especially when you're, you know, people are pulling your hair if you do have long mm. hair because, you know, you, you're, you're, your hair is a little bit more coarse or, or maybe you have a fade as a woman and uh, on top of, you know, being dark skin. And so people just don't want to see your femininity, see you as a woman and then don't even see you as human. So I remember on my CLS experience, I had already been trying to back and forth several times, but one of my fellow colleagues, it was her first time. She was a Spelman student and uh, she had never been to China and uh, she was really excited and I don't think it, I don't, I don't think she was, I, I, she had had the conversations on the pre-departure orientation, but I don't think she had really, really understood or grasped how pervasive it is and mm -hmm. how deep it runs, especially on the daily basis, just being slapped down every day, being told mm -hmm. you're being told, don't touch me. I don't want to touch your skin. Your skin is dirty. And so I, I remember watching her, you know, start off as this really bright and excited person ready to learn about China towards and towards the end, really breaking down in tears more on a consistent basis because it just became so hard to, 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 to endure that level of violence. And so, you know, as someone that was accustomed to that, um, because I, I think that, yeah, even though I'm a black male in China, um, being uh, mixed race is a little bit of a different experience and mm. just being dark skinned, I need to recognize the privilege and power in that as well. Uh, and so... I don't want to sort of capitalize on her experience. I don't want to make it my own. Um, and so to really, I, all I can do is speak to my observations of how that impacted her. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the only way to sort of intervene was brainstorm ways that could regenerate or recover from just living out there. And so, you know, I think uh, if we talk about it a little bit later, thinking about what are the, I guess, safe spaces or safe havens um, do you have in place or mechanisms that you have in place, you know, when you come back to your dorm room or when you come back to your right. family, are you talking to your family? Are you talking, are you on, you know, do you have some allies in the group that you're traveling with? I think having those with you uh, when you're overseas can really serve as uh, protective tissue against um, all the harm that can be done through these microaggressions that you talked about.
Yeah. That is a great point. I'm going to add that to our question doc. I think that's really smart too. It's like, how do you um, uh, focus on self-care when you're in these places? And you're right, trying to right. throw yourself into the language, trying to not, I mean, we would always feel so, I don't know if you guys felt this way, feel so mm-hmm. guilty about like wanting to go right. to McDonald's and wanting to right. watch Netflix mm. or I mean, right. that wasn't a thing when I went abroad, but like wanting to <laughs> seek out those American things because we had to be, live an authentic experience and you just have right. to strike that balance of like exactly. taking care of yourself and doing the best that you can when you're 100%. there. So I really respect that answer. And I think that we should ask other people about that stuff. Definitely. Too, no. For sure. Yeah. And I also love that kind of going back to your basketball story, I love that you were able to follow it up with a really meaningful conversation. Cause I feel like every time I talk to people who have similar stories like that, it, it normally just ends there. You right, know, they thought right. I was good at basketball and right. you know, went on with my life. But the fact that you were able to kind of sit down and have an informal conversation over hot right. pot, right. I, I feel like that, you know, no matter how small puts it in the right direction for making oh. change. Oh, totally. Um, 100%. And even if it's not this one conversation, right, that's going to change their entire mind about, oh, my gosh, I now completely <laughs> race in America is like on this nuanced, you know, Angela Davis level of right. uh, sophistication. Um, you know, I, even if it's just like this is just one conversation um, that's going to mm-hmm. prep them for the next conversation for when they interact with someone that looks like you or has a similar identity. I, I just think, you know, having the conversation is uh, better than just. Not at all, but yeah, no, thank you. That's soft power, right? Right. That's what they teach us. That's how you make change. The small little circles expand and yeah, for sure. Yeah. So also too, you know, it, it, I think not only China, I mean, obviously the U S has a a long way to go with these kinds of conversations as well, but you know, it, it sounds like China does as well. So, I mean, what areas do you think in China specifically need to be improved on? And also maybe what areas could the U.S. learn from, from China? Yeah, great, great question. Um, So I personally think, and this does not mean to be a a sort of mass attack on China, but I frankly just think China has a very, very long way to go. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, there were just reports out in September from Xinhua, the main news agency Mm -hmm. in China, Embasting young men for how they express their masculinity and femininity, um, because you know if you look at Chinese media, the way that masculinity is presented is a little bit more feminine, and I and this has led to the Communist Party and the uh, news agencies calling them Niang um, Pao, which means uh, sissy pants, um, and it really in many ways undermines or really indirectly supports toxic forms of masculinity and and, and perpetuates it. Um, you know, there, there are reports of uh, detentions of, you know, several hundred thousand uh, millions of uh, Uyghur Muslims just mm-hmm. based on their religious identity. Uh, <clears throat> you have uh, ethnic minorities, you, or you have Han Chinese moving into predominantly ethnic minority centers and uh, going with, undergoing a process of Hanization where, you know, you know, for example, Tibetans can no longer practice their religion or or, uh, or learn about their culture or their language because they need to only learn Mandarin and learn about Chinese or Han Chinese traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, think if you just, one only needs to look at the Politburo Standing Committee uh, to see that there are no women at the highest upper echelons of the Chinese government and Chinese party. So, you know, frankly, I just think China has a long way to go. And, you know, it's not that the United States is faring any better. You know, we, I think, we're undergoing a situation where we don't even see human immigrants as humans. There are black and brown mm. bodies being locked up. Women's access to healthcare being rolled back. And it's, a, it's a, it, I, I realize that it's a bit of a dark um, <clears throat> response. Um, 
And it's like, okay, well, if they can't learn from each other, um, you know, who can they learn from? Are there other countries? And, you know, frankly, to that, I, I, I simply don't know. Um, you know, if we had the answer to that, I think that we wouldn't be having this exact conversation. However, I think by having this conversation, and if we could es escalate this conversation to higher levels of government, whether that's track, uh, you know, uh, 1.5 or what have you, um, mm -hmm. with bureaucrat level, State Department officials or high level exchanges, I think by having these frank conversations, perhaps it would be a, a, a shift in the right directions towards how we can get to a point where we can learn from each other. Yeah. So kind of to turn it to a little bit of a lighter note as we wrap up, um, we were hoping to end this segment with kind of a speed round, a lightning round, if you will, for a couple questions about your experiences in China. So the first question that we had is, tell us your favorite food while you were studying through CLS. Yes, favorite food is mabu tofu. Oh, nice. Yes, yes. <laughs> for, the for, for the non-Chinese speakers? Yes, yes. Mabu tofu is uh, like uh, this tofu dish um, that has sprinkled beef on it. It's all made out of tofu with this uh, red pepper sauce from Sichuan um, that's incredibly spicy. And then sprinkled throughout are these mind-numbing, or not mind-numbing, excuse me, uh, these num numbing spices. Mind-numbing, uh, I love that. It is a little mind-numbing. <laughs> <laughs> Sweating and your mouth's only hot, but then it goes numb as a result of this dish, and and others like it. I mean, but it's also Sichuan, so. Mm -hmm. Oh my god! And that's good. You really <laughs> like that. I that's your favorite dish. <laughs> what an interesting experience! Wow. Um, okay, we're gonna keep it going. So, what was your favorite place that you visited uh, when you were in China, CLS or otherwise? Definitely, I would say Tibet, specifically mm. the base camp of Mount Everest. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Great answer. Wow. Yeah, hard to breathe, let me tell you. I can't like, wow. imagine. Wow, it seems like you like putting yourself in situations where you can't really catch your breath. And you... <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. right. You got to grow somehow. Put yourself in uncomfortable situations. Yeah, <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, all right, next one is, what is your favorite phrase in Chinese? And if you could also translate it, please. Sure, sure. So my favorite phrase is... And uh, it means a journey of a thousand miles first begins with one step. And the reason why I like it, uh, no matter how daunting the task or how big the challenge, never really being intimidated or paralyzed by it, but instead uh, taking one step forward and then continuing on. Perfect. Oh my gosh, I hope someday my Chinese can be as good as yours. That, that, is, no, that is so impressive. We're going to bring it back. Um, tell us about, and you have alluded to this a bit, tell us about a time that you wanted to cry when you were abroad. Great. I, I think uh, a time I wanted to cry when I was um, alone in a hospital bed with pneumonia and yellow, or excuse me, uh, typhoid fever and trying to handle my insurance with limited Chinese abilities to talk about my health and like symptoms. When people say like, how are you so chill about moving apartments or getting new jobs? I'm like, when you've done things like that in another language, in another country, you can literally do anything. <laughs> this is what I feel. I promise you I wasn't thinking that at the time, but yeah, I definitely yeah, felt like sure. it was the end of days. Hindsight, <laughs> hindsight, definitely. Right, wow, right, that's, no, I want to hear yeah. that story later. That's amazing. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So kind of flipping it again to a little bit happier moment. So maybe tell us about a time when you were reminded about how happy you were to be where you are. I think that um, any time that I got a chance to talk about uh, my experience to my Chinese counterparts about, you know, diversity or what it means to be just a black person or just like any social issue, 
because these are things that I'm very passionate about and being able to share that and have, get to get my Chinese to a level where I can facilitate those conversations, however broken, um, were, were moments where uh, I felt really empowered, um, found myself getting chills, not only just me sharing, right, my experiences, but also listening to Chinese uh, individuals talk about their experiences and how they are similar and or different, mm-hmm. um, both with, you know, Han Chinese and as well as some of my Tibetan friends. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really energized me in so many ways and found myself just feeling so glad that, um, you know, I am here in that moment having those conversations, doing exactly what the thing that I wanted to do when I first learned Chinese, which was to have these conversations in the first place. So Mm -hmm. the full circle-ness of it all is what really just like brought me greatest joy. Can you pinpoint a specific moment, like an aha moment where you were like, whoa, I'm here, I'm doing this. Like Uh I'm deep in it. My language skills are improving. I've made connections. I feel comfortable. Like, is there, I feel like we all have those moments where like, whoa, I don't know if you can think of one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully one, uh, at some point I can hear about your aha moments because I always think they're so interesting. Um, So I I wish mine was like, you know, I was deep in a hutong, which is like a Chinese neighborhood, but unfortunately it was, uh, uh, at, in, at during the CLS program um, in Xi'an, we had the chance to host a, cha- a talent show, and so I was selected as the, one of the hosts. And so, just being able to like get up there and just like I didn't have a script; I was just sort of freestyling, improving, telling jokes, laughing with the crowd, uh, making them crack up, and dancing, and you know, uh, making cultural reference for me at the time, which was like Soldier Boy and Watch Me Whip, Watch Me Nay Nay. Uh, <laughs> they loved that. <laughs> Uh, TBD the 2015. Um, right. <laughs> uh, so 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 being able to do that was like oh my gosh like what like I can just go seamlessly between you know uh, or at least at the time uh, feel very comfortable going between like Western culture and Chinese mm-hmm. culture and um, uh, going back and forth and making jokes in both was uh, was really fun and doing it in front of a crowd was was even uh, more affirming in a lot of ways. I feel like the aha moments typically are those moments, right? Because that's when you realize that you've just been living your life in that language. It's actually not when you're doing something crazy, academic or whatever. Although I would argue, I mean, they say humor is like the hardest thing in any language, Mm -hmm. like humor and sarcasm. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you were able to both understand what was happening and also deliver jokes that they actually found funny, it's like, whoa, that's kind of very impressive. Like, did I ever get that? You're right. Yeah, for sure. Because you have to, it's like so culturally based. Yeah. So just to say that's very, we're very impressed with that. Definitely. Yeah. Michael, quick question. Do you dream in Chinese? Because I know some people have told me their aha moments are when they realize, oh my gosh, I'm dreaming in Chinese. That's good. You know, I really wish I my Chinese got to that point where I could dream in Chinese, Mm. but unfortunately not. But I'm so jealous of those that can't. Are you one or many, I guess, that can? Oh, gosh. I've had a couple dreams, but it is, it's literally like a sentence. It's nothing. <laughs> Don't discredit it. it. A sentence is a sentence. Only truth, all right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, cool. Well, to wrap it up, I guess our last question is, because we have a lot of people that are going to be listening to this that not only have done CLS, but are maybe going to be doing sales in the future or interested in looking into these kinds of opportunities. So what's the biggest piece of advice that you would give to someone who's about to visit China for the first time? Uh, it's two-part, and it's going to tie back to, I think, what Miriam was talking about earlier. First, um, as always, my, my, my initial, uh, as sappy and rosy as it sounds, is uh, to say yes to the culture, the language, the history, the music. Go there, be open-minded about about it. And so that's what I mean by say yes to the culture and say yes to a lot of everything um, within reason, of course. But um, to bring it back to Miriam's point, <clears throat> it's okay to remember at the end of the day to say no. And I think by no, I mean 
when you know you're undergoing all of these microaggressions on on a daily basis, um, it's okay to say no and say I actually just want to take today for self care. I only want to take you know these next couple hours to speak English with my friends right now, um, or to uh, really connect in a very personal way. It, depending on your language skills, you can um, maybe for some folks be able to build meaningful relationships that are up depth and substance. But if your language skills aren't there yet, everything can sort of feel superficial. Mm-hmm. And so I think finding safe zones and safe spaces where you can get that substance. I want to say thank you for uh, you know allowing me to come today, share my story and my narrative, and asking really great um, you know questions that um, allowed me to reflect, but also uh, talk about some really important issues facing um, China, the United States, and just you know um, issues globally as well. Of course, you were the perfect first guest. I think you like expanded our minds for what we want for this podcast, and just kind of. Um reinvigorated at least my sense of like why I am doing this and did this and what I got from CLS. So I really appreciate that little like CLS memory lane that we just took together. So so as a way to kind of wrap up the podcast, we were hoping that you could say goodbye to everyone, but do it in Chinese and also maybe give us to a lesson on you know, how to say goodbye in Chinese. I want to say uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to the CLS Alumni Society podcast. It was a pleasure um, speaking with the hosts today um, and being able to share my narrative. Um, and with that said, I'm going to uh, say goodbye in Chinese. So have a good day. Goodbye. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our podcast today. We want to give a special shout out and thank you to CLSAS and CLS Ambassadors for supporting this programming. And if you guys want to learn more about CLS or CLSAS or be on future episodes of the podcast, go to clsas.org and then go to the media tab. And thank you listeners and participants of the pod for being open-minded and willing to jump into these tough but important conversations. And to close us out, here's a clip of Michael Ford teaching Latin dance to a group of students in China. Yeah. One.